you brought your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you have, turn with me to the book of Psalms, to the seventh Psalm. So if you, if, you, if you flip there to the, about the middle of your Bible, you're going to be pretty close. To the, I want you to turn to the seventh Psalm here this morning. I'll give you just a moment to find it. Um, I've got a question for you. I know the answer, but I'm asking it anyways. Right above your psalm, between where it says Psalm 7 in the first verse, is there a, a little writing there, maybe a little bit smaller than the scripture? Um, that's called a, uh, I think it's called a superscription uh, or a title. Um, not all the psalms, I, I think every Bible, I, I think pretty much every Bible has this in there. Um, there may have been some printed without it, but I don't think I've ever seen one that didn't have it. Um, it's not, if you'll notice, there's not one there for every psalm. I think the third psalm is the first one to have one. Not all the psalms have, have them, but a, uh, a lot of them do. Uh, do. Do you know what that is, the history behind it or anything about it? Um, I, I don't want to go into a lot on it. I don't want to create any confusion or anything like that. That's not my plan. So if, if you come away from this confused at all, see me afterwards and we'll, we'll discuss it. Um, that, that right there in the Hebrew Bible, all right, so the, the, the Bible the Jews use, right, with the, the Hebrew Bible, if you were to pick one up and look at it, you would notice that the Psalms, the seventh Psalm, has 18 verses in it. Ours has 17, theirs has 18. They count that title or that uh, superscription, I think that's how you say it, they count it as verse 1. Uh, the, the Jews recognize it as or see it as being um, inspired text. Uh, traditionally, um, Christians have not seen those titles as inspired text. Uh, they see them as, as historically important. That's why it's printed in all of your Bibles. But they print it smaller and with a little bit different, you know, in italics or different font or typeface or whatever, so that, you, so that it offsets it, so that you see that it's a little bit different. Um, and so that is a disagreement, I guess you could say, between the Jewish people and the Christians of whether or not that is part of the inspired text. Let me say this about it real quick. Um, some of your Bibles have got headings in them, some don't. Those are put there by the publishers, right? It, it just to help you. Some people view that that's what these titles were, that they weren't put there by, in this case, David, the author of this psalm. They were put there later by maybe the chronicler or, 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 or somebody else later on. Either way, I don't want you to get hung up on it, but I want you to realize that there is historical uh, importance there and there's information uh, that is good for us to have to help inform us about the psalm. Otherwise, it wouldn't be put in there. And we're talking these headings here or these uh, superscriptions or titles, whatever you want to call them, uh, they are at least 2,500 years old. Okay, David wrote this psalm approximately roughly 3,000 years ago. And this title, this superscription, it could be as old as that. It could have been uh, uh, written by David. It could have been written shortly after David, 20, 30, you know, 40 years later. But it, was, it is at least 2,500 years old. So there's an historical importance there. And I'm going to read it in this psalm. I'm going to read it in the first verse, and then we're going to go to the Lord together in prayer. 
I am going to confess to you right off the bat that first word, I don't have any idea how you're supposed to say that. Uh, my best guess is Shagayim, and that is a guess at best, okay? But Shagayim of David, which he sang unto the Lord concerning the words of Cush the Benjamite. Verse 1, O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just humbly come before you here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the good day. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you've given us to gather here this morning to to worship together, to fellowship together. Lord, to, to hear your word taught and preached and sung here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for, for all the things, Lord, that... that we've seen you do and that you are doing. We thank you for the nation that we live in, the freedom that we have, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for all of these things, but we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, Lord God, that you sent him in giving so that we might have life and have that life eternally and abundantly. God, don't let us ever take that for granted. I pray, Lord, that we would always have praise and glory on our lips because you alone are worthy of it. And Lord, I just pray here this morning... Have your way and your will in our bits. Move in a mighty way. God, you see the hearts. There's nothing hidden from you. You know every one of us. You know the intents of our heart. You know the deepest thoughts. Uh, you know the, the things that, uh, uh, that we are facing, the things that we have faced, the things that are still yet ahead of us, Lord. There is nothing that you don't see, nothing that is hidden from you. And so, God, my prayer is, is that you would move on your people here this morning in a mighty way. God, that you would stir us, Lord, let your presence be known and felt here, God. I'm asking that you would pour out your spirit upon us, Lord. That you, uh, Lord, that you would just, uh, Lord, that you'd come down from above, Lord, and that you would move on your people in a mighty way. That you'd stir our hearts, God. I'm asking, Lord, for your anointing, for your holy unction here this morning. I'm asking, Lord, for your conviction. I'm asking, Lord, for a moving of your spirit, Lord. If there is any among us that don't know you, any that are lost and undone, any that are backslidden, any that have fallen away, whatever the case may be, maybe they have never known you. God, let today be the day of salvation for them. Let today be the day of repentance. Let today be the day of turning to you or turning back to you. Let today be the day that they finally put it all in your hands and turn it all over to you before it's everlasting too late. And Lord, for me, I need your help. I can't preach without you. So I'm asking that you'd preach me one more time here this morning. God, give me the words you'd have me to say, the heart to say them. Clear my mind of everything except for your message, your thoughts, your words. Help me to speak your truth, your word, in a way that brings you glory with power with conviction. Lord, just have your way and your will here and we'll give you all the glory. We love you, we worship you, and we praise your holy name. And we ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. I want to turn your attention back to that that superscription, that title for just a moment. Because I, it, for me... I've confessed to you before that I struggled with the Psalms. 
For me, the historical background really helps a bunch. Uh, what I mean by that is every one of these psalms, uh, and we think when we think of psalms, we think of uh, David as the psalmist, King David, uh, and he is the author of, of many of the psalms, but not all the psalms, not even close to all of them. Um, for me, it helps to understand, because every one of these psalms is written there is something that has happened in the psalmist's life. A point of crisis, and they're crying out to God. A point of affliction, a point of where they feel like the, you know, the, the, the enemies are closing in around them. Or maybe that it's a psalm of praise and a, point of, a time of where you know, God has answered their prayers and they're rejoicing and they're giving praise and they're giving glory to God. A lot of them are meant to be sung as worship. A lot of them over the centuries were sung in the temple and incorporated in part of the worship. And so my point is, is there is a story behind every one of the psalms. Uh, some of them we know, we know well. Psalm 51, right? That's David's psalm of repentance, right? After uh, he's been confronted by Nathan because of his sin with Bathsheba and, and everything that he's done, right? It wasn't hidden from God. And so Psalm 51 shows us why David was a man after God's own heart. We have his, uh, we see the psalm of repentance there, you know? So there's some that are obvious that we know. There's others. I, I preached on one, I think, a few weeks ago that really didn't know much about the historical background of it. But this one here, we know a little bit. Um, there's a couple differing opinions. You might have a commentary in your Bible that, that has a little different opinion than what I do. That's all right. Everybody has the, uh, the right to be wrong. No, I'm joking. Uh, but, you no, know, seriously, though, um, I think that this, this one here sheds a little light here. David has sung to, is singing to the Lord. He's crying out to the Lord. Concerning the words, something that this Cush of the Benjamites, Benjaminites, has done. In other words, this Cush of the tribe of Benjamin. Something he has said is causing David to cry out to the Lord. Now, remember that King Saul, the first king of Israel is from the tribe of Benjamin. If you'll remember in King Saul, uh, if you don't remember, go back and start reading uh, in 1 Samuel, uh, and you will see that, that whenever the people demanded a king because they wanted to be like the nations around them, uh, Saul is selected. The scripture says that Saul is a man who stands head and shoulders above everyone else. He looks the part. He looks like a king ought to look. Actually, in his first encounters, I would argue he doesn't seem like he is the maybe the brightest crayon in the box, but, but maybe he is just very humble. We definitely see some of that in the beginning. And, and so anyways, we see God, uh, you know, anoint him, right? Uh, we see say, he uses Samuel to do that, to anoint him, and, and, and all of that is taking place, right? We see that God is with Saul at first, but then we see because of Saul's disobedience and his arrogance, right? Power has a way of doing that. Right, he starts out as a, a young man, maybe a humble young man, right? And some time goes on, and and maybe the the power of being.
reigning king is, begins to turn him or corrupt him? I don't know exactly what happens, but I know a little time goes by and we see an arrogant and disobedient uh, uh, Saul. We still see, if I was right, that he was a little dense in the beginning, we see that that arrogance and disobedience has only made that worse, right? And so finally it comes to the point, because of his disobedience, that the Spirit of God leaves him. And we see that he's a troubled man after that. Uh, David is the next king. As a matter of fact, whenever God has rejected Saul as the king of Israel, God sent Samuel to anoint David when David is still just a young boy. Ruddy young boy is the, is the description the scriptures get. Right? You remember Jesse's his dad's name. Remember when Samuel goes to Jesse's house and says, God sent me here uh, to anoint the next king of Israel. And Jesse starts marching his boys out there. And he's got some good-looking boys, some big strapping boys that look like, you know, they're good stock and look like they ought to be king. One by one, he marches them out through there. Samuel says, no, it ain't this one. It ain't this one. They get through all of them. Jesse is, you know, he's, I guess, flabbergasted by this. And Samuel says, do you not have any more boys? Is this it? And that's when he says, well, we got one more. He's the youngin. He's the runt. runt. He's the ruddy. He's out with the sheep. He said, we'll bring him in. Well, anyways, that was David. That was the one. But now God anoints him as king, but he doesn't take over the throne immediately. Saul is still on the throne. There's years that go by, right? I mean, we've got the whole story, right? When David goes and he kills Goliath, right? We, we've got him, right? Saul uses him. Saul, after the Spirit of God has left him, Saul is so troubled, right? David comes and plays music for him to help soothe him, right? To help calm him, uh, you know? And, and, and we see that Saul would just break out in these uh, murderous, I mean, rages, right? I mean, he tries to spear him one and everything, you know, and, and Saul, we just see Saul is just all over the place, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the other. One minute he loves David like his own son, the next minute he's trying to kill him. David ends up marrying Saul's daughter and becomes, uh, becomes Saul's son-in-law. David goes on to become a mighty warrior and the people begin to sing, I think it's the women begin to sing, that Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. And Saul is jealous of David from that point on. Very much so. It's from that point, right? He says, I think he says to his men, you know, something to the effect of what are they going to do next? Give him the kingdom? Listen to what they're saying about him. Another chapter later, you see he talked to Jonathan, his, Saul's son Jonathan, and his boys. And see, I think Saul is just worried about keeping power. But Saul, he plays, right? And that's how... That's how evil people and corrupt people do, right? And he, he plays on what he thinks, the fear of somebody else to get what he wants, right? And so with, uh, with Jonathan, who, who's his son, who should be the heir next, you know, he's, he kind of plays it off like, you know, you need to protect your birthright here, right? And he goes to, I think it says Jonathan and some of his men, and says, look, we need to kill David. And then we have a period of time, years, Saul pursues David. Saul and his men pursues David. Chase David all over the countryside, trying to kill him. David had to live in exile, in, 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 you know, for a while even. David had to hide in caves. There is, if I remember right, two different instances 
For God gave David the opportunity to kill Saul. And David doesn't do it. He says, how can I, how can I kill the anointed of God? The words of Cush to Benjamin. The Bible don't really don't say much about this Cush guy. Um, some of the some of the Jewish scholars of ancient times said a little bit about him. I think Josephus wrote a little bit about him. Um, it seems like that this Cush is one of them guys. Trying to think of a nice word to put for call these guys. I can't think of one. I'm going to say suck-ups. That made sure they were hanging around Saul all the time, telling Saul what Saul wanted to hear, trying to just get in good and stay in good with Saul. Anything, any kind of dirt that they hear on David or anything that they think they can twist into some dirt, I'm sure they feed that right to Saul. So you have this, these men who are helping Saul, who hung around Saul, who are you know, repeating anything, and if there's not any rumors to repeat or lies to repeat, uh, you know, in order to gain Saul's approval and, and hopefully be rewarded by him, right, these men would lie about David. And it seems that Saul would believe them. Now, we don't know what specific lies that... Cush, the Benjamin, the, from the tribe of Benjamin, what specific lies he told Saul. But we do know from this song that David was concerned enough about it in order to cry out to God for deliverance and for uh, vindication, right? He wanted to be vindicated, right? So the theme of this psalm is, is uh, God's vindication of his servants and judgment on his enemies. And so we see in the seventh psalm David's prayer or his cry, right? Uh, his cry to God for help. So I, I want to take just a minute and I want to go through this real quick, all right? So I, I read to you verse one. I'm going to read it again. O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. Right? So, so first of all, he's saying, save me. Right? Save me from my enemies. Right? Verse 2. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. Uh, he goes from, in verse 1, uh, talking in, in, in the plural. Right? In other words, from them. Right? So you, you think about Saul and the group around him. And in verse 2, it just goes to a singular. He, 
that he'd tear my soul like a lion, rending it, you know, tearing it in pieces, right? And so essentially we can see here personified in that. I mean, he might have been thinking of Saul specifically. We can see that we know that Satan is the one behind that, right? Uh, But evil, that's what he's saying here is save me. Save me from my enemies. Save me from all evil. Verse 3. In these next few verses, I think we see where, where David is saying, search me. Right? Verse 3, O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there be any iniquity in my hands. Right? You hear what he's saying? Lord, if I've done this. Right? He's concerned about the words of Cush the Benjamite. Right? So he's saying if the things that this man is saying about me, if they are true, if I have done this, if there be any iniquity in my hands, verse 4, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. Now think about this a minute. That part that's in parentheses there, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is my enemy. That's exactly how David felt about King Saul. King Saul was his enemy, but it was without cause. There was no reason why Saul should hate him. There's no reason why Saul should be jealous of him. There's no reason why uh, Saul uh, should be chasing him, trying to kill him, right? And so anyways, he's saying in verse 3 and 4, he's inviting God to search him, right? He's inviting God's examination. That's what he's saying. I invite you. Examine me. Examine my actions, my heart, the intents of my heart, right? And then verse 5 says, let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. Lay my honor in the dust. He's saying, if I, he's inviting correction. He says, examine me. If any of this is true, then, then let them persecute me. If any of this is true, let my honor be thrown in the dirt, right? And trampled in the dust, right? He is saying, if any of this is true, then, then correct me. Of course, he knows that it's not. In this next verses 6 through 9, we see him saying, help me, secure me. Uh, Verse 6, the first part of it, arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies. Right? So he's inviting God, right, to, to, to help him. Judgment here, right? Uh, uh, you know, if, if you have examined me and find nothing wrong, then arise in anger against these who unjustly persecute me. The rest of verse 6 says, Awake for me, and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. Right? Attack my adversaries. Verse 7. So shall the congregation of the people compass, that's around, compass thee about for their sakes. Therefore return thou on high, and the Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me. Right? He's, at, he's inviting God's judgment. Judge the people, right? Judge me. Uh, verse 9, he goes on and says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, right? Destroy the wicked is what he's saying, right? He's, he, all he wants is God's judgment, a righteous 
judgment, right? In the last part of verse 9, he says, but establish the just, right? You see that contrast, right? Judge the wicked, establish the just, for the righteous God trieth the hearts in reigns, right? So in other words, he's saying affirm, a state is a fact, the righteous, who they are, right? God examines the inner thoughts and motives. Right? That's exactly what, what God says through Samuel whenever David is being uh, uh, chosen and anointed as king. He says, man sees on the outward, but God sees the heart. Right? God examines the inner thoughts and the motives. He knows the truth. Only he, only God can confirm it. Only God is the judge. That's what's being said here. Now let's look at this last section, verse 10 through the end. In this, I, I want to make the point that he is saying, protect me, shield me. My defense is of God, right? Which saveth the upright in heart. He's saying, shield me with God's defense. Verse 11 goes on right, right along with that same thing. God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. Verse 12. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. Right? You ever heard of a whetstone? Sharpen. That's what it's talking about, right? It'll sharpen the edge on that sword. He hath bent, right? So, so we got God's sword, and then we've got, and he hath bent his bow and made it ready, right? And then we've got God's bow, right? So he's saying, shield me with God's defense. Shield me with God's sword. Shield me with God's bow. Verse 13, he's going to say, shield me with God's arrows, right? He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors, right? So there's the arrows. And then verses 14 um, through 16. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity and hath conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged and digged it, and he's fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. So he is saying there, right, shield me with the enemies. And I'm going to come back and talk about this some more here in just a minute. But I want you to point. I want to point out to you that travaileth is the old word a word for labor, right? Somebody who's pregnant goes into labor, right? Literally, labor pains is what it's talking about. Brought forth means to give birth, right? And so he's saying, let them destroy themselves. And then verse 17, he says, I will praise the Lord according to His righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Shield me with God's praise. Now, there's three things. Three things for us to learn from this psalm. And I could state these three things and we could probably go home, but I'm not going to. First of all, the three things though. The first of all we learn from this is God is just and righteous. Okay? I doubt that that is... Uh, news to you or shocking to you you probably understood that already but the first thing that we've got to take home from this is God is just and God is righteous the second thing is that God's judgment is just and final I think that we probably all knew this but I also think we struggle with that final part right God's judgment is just and it's final and then the third thing and this is the point I want to hammer home this morning 
evil is self-destructive. Right? That's the point I want to hone in on for just a minute this morning, and then we'll be done. Is that evil is self-destructive. Look again at verses 14, 15, and 16. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. Do you see a picture that's being painted there? Verse 15. He made a pit. This is the enemies. This is those that done evil, right? They dug a pit, right? He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. Which the, the one doing evil, right? The enemy is made. His mischief shall return upon his own head and his, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. Pat, pate, I'm not sure how you're supposed to say that. What that is, is that, that P-A-T-E, that is the top of your head. What these verses are saying in a nutshell is there are people who think up evil and plan trouble and tell lies and then they, what they do is they dig a hole in order to trap others in but they end up falling into it themselves. They will get themselves into trouble, right? In the end, the violence and trouble that they cause will hurt themselves the most. That's what he's trying, that's what's trying to be said here. But it's really interesting to me the picture that is being painted in verse 14. He travaileth with iniquity. He is in labor with iniquity. The next part where it says brought forth, right? He is, uh, or conceived, I'm sorry. Yeah, the next part is conceived mischief, right? He is conceived mischief. And then the last part in brought forth falsehood, right? Given birth to lies, right? Uh, do you see that picture? It's saying, he's painting a word picture for us. He's in labor with iniquity. He is conceived with mischief. He has given birth to lies. The, the, actually, the image of sin as a pregnancy, that's actually frequently used uh, in, the, in the scriptures. You, get in your concordance and look up conceive and see how many times that's used in connection with sin, with iniquity, with transgressions. Sinners conceive sin that like a Monstrous child. <laughs> You've heard that saying. You've you probably used it before, but you mean it affectionately, you know, when you talk about the, their little monster or your little monster. But you've also, if you want to be real, I know it's not polite to talk about, but if you want to be just really honest, there is some people, right, who, create, who literally create little monsters. I view myself as, I hate to say, you know, well, let me just say this. Jennifer's babysat enough kids over the years. I've seen this. It's true. The picture that they're painting of sin is that it is conceived like this monstrous child, which eventually goes up, grows up, and destroys them. 
they dig pits and fall into them themselves. The trouble they cause comes back on their own heads. Galatians 6, uh, chapter 6 and verse 7 says, as a matter of fact, the verses I picked for uh, Devin to read this morning, it used that terminology about sin being conceived. That's why I picked it. And then in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, I couldn't decide between having him read that one and this one, but Galatians 6, 7 says, uh, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Think about this for just a minute. God abandoned King Saul to his own ways. And ultimately, I tried to emphasize a while ago, right, the, when, he, when David was saying, shield me, uh, protect me with uh, your sword and then with your bow and with your arrows. It's interesting. If you read there at the, at the end of uh, 1 Samuel, at the very end of 1 Samuel where we see Saul being killed, he is shot through with the enemy's arrows and then ends up falling on his own sword in order to kill himself, commit suicide. Do you see that? He wanted to kill David with that sword. And he ends up dying, being killed by his own sword. That's not the only time that happens. Think about Pharaoh. What Pharaoh wanted to do? He wanted, to ha- he wanted all the little Hebrew boys to be drowned in the Nile River. But what happened with Pharaoh and his army? Were they not drowned in the Red Sea? What about Haman? You remember in Esther? He built them gallows or had them gallows built in order to hang Mordecai on them. But it was Haman himself who was hung on them gallows. You ever heard the saying before that crime doesn't pay? Well, I'm here to tell you what these verses are saying is that sin does not pay. Evil, wickedness, it does not pay. Doing wrong never pays off. It will always, always, always costs us more than it pays us, right? That's why that old saying that you probably heard every preacher in the country say is sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and will cost you more than you can pay. Here is what I've come to tell you this morning. When you live a life without God, you're living a life of sin. That's just as simple as it gets. And listen to me, all sin is wrong, it's bad, it's evil. And listen, it is also, we've all been given a free will, it is also our choice, my choice, your choice. To choose to either live a good life or a bad life. A sinful life or a godly life. And when you make the wrong choice, the bad choice, of a life of wrong, which is sin, we already agreed on that a minute ago, do you know what happens? First of all, you hurt those that are closest to you. Those that you care the most about, those that you love the most, if you love anybody. You hurt them the most. 
and you destroy your own life. You destroy yourself. So, here's how I want to end. Good news. Here's the good news. God gave his only begotten son to die for the sins of the world. He done this, first of all, so that his, uh, so that, how do I want to say this, so that he might uphold his holy law. But at the same time, it is his mercy and his grace to all those who will believe. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say God can save you. If you're here this morning and you're not right with God and you're not saved, and I've heard so many people over the years, right, think that they have done things that, and that, that is just too bad, it's unforgivable, that God can't ever save them. The truth is God can forgive them. God can save them. The problem is, is they can't forgive themselves. Uh, but listen to me. I'm telling you this morning, hear me if you hear nothing else. God can save you. God can save anyone that will repent and turn to him, right? It doesn't matter how bad that you've been. God can still save them from sin, right? Uh, He can save them from sin. He can save them from evil. He can save them from hell. And most of all, he can save them from themselves. But here's what you got to do. You got to believe God in his word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's Romans chapter 10. You've got to believe God in his word. You've got to repent, right? That means to change your mind about the bad things that you've been doing and agree with God that those things are wrong, that those things are, are, are sin, right? That's what repenting is. You cannot say that you've repented and still want to continue, right? Still continue to do those same things, thinking that there's nothing wrong with those things, right? You have got to have that change of mind, that repent, that 180-degree turn, right? where you agree with God that you have sinned, that you have done wrong, that those things, that you should not do those things, and that God is right and He is just. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say accept Jesus into your heart and into your life and let God change you. It's as simple as that. Sometimes we overcomplicate things. Listen to me. The gospel is so simple that even a small child can understand it. Just accept Christ. Put your, put your trust in Him. Put your belief in Him. Turn it over to Him. And let God change you. And He'll do it. He'll transform you into a new person. He'll change you from the inside out. You will not be the same anymore. But you've got to surrender to Him. You've got to give it over to Him. So often, we want to hang on to a piece of our life. We want to hang on to a certain sin, something that's wrong, something that comes between us and God. And then we wonder, why is there no change? Why am I not transformed? Listen, I'm going to give you a hard piece of news this morning. You still need to get saved. And you ain't saved until you turn it over to Him and you put your trust and your faith in Him and in Him alone. In Jesus, we stand to your feet.
I want to open the altar and I want to give you an opportunity to come this morning. Spirit of God dealing with you, would you come this morning? You got a need, you got a heavy burden, would you come this morning? God drawing you this morning, would you come? Maybe he's calling you to do something. Would you come this morning? Whatever it is, maybe you've got a burden on your heart for somebody. Somebody who's deep in sin, somebody who's struggling, somebody that's in trouble. Would you come and pray for them this morning? Whatever the need is here this morning, don't you be shy, don't you be bashful, don't you worry what anyone else thinks. It don't matter what anyone else thinks. Don't you worry what time it is. Dinner will still be there when we get out of here. If God is dealing with you, if the Holy Spirit of God is drawing you this morning, would you come? Would you come? 